Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, guys, we have a great episode of Performance Anxiety on the Pantheon Podcast Network for you today. I'm your host, Mark, and I'm joined by the wonderful David Lance Callahan. He's the guitarist, sampler, singer, and founder of the Wolfhounds and Moonshake. We kick things off by talking about an essay he wrote about Marty Robbins, who happens to be one of my favorite artists. But beyond that, David gives me a great history lesson on a band that should be in the libraries of all My Bloody Valentine or Jesus and Mary Chain fans the Wolfhounds. They started off in the C86 scene, and David gives me a lesson on what that was. The band released four full-length albums between 1987 and 1990, and then called it quits. David soon followed up with Moonshake, which was a bit of a departure, but really opened up new musical landscapes for it. But by 1996, Moonshake was over. David left music for a while to concentrate on real life, but in 2012, the Wolfhounds returned and have been going on strong, pandemics notwithstanding. David has also released two solo albums with a third on the way. So follow David and the Wolfhounds on social media at the underscore Wolfhounds on Instagram and at the Wolfhounds on Twitter and Facebook. Follow us at Performance ANX on the socials. Rate and review this or any episode. And support can be shown through ko-fi.com slash performance anxiety or performanceanx.threadless.com. So let's get started with David Lance Callahan on Performance Anxiety on the Pantheon Podcast Network. Okay. Um, this is David Lance Callahan of Moonshake and the Wolfhounds and Solo Fame. I'm talking to Mark Reed of Performance Anxiety about my new solo LPs, English Primitive 1 and 2. Oh, sorry. I want to say Reed. That's just crap, isn't it? Okay, well, I'm going to write sorry on that. Sorry about that. Okay, well, I'll do it again then. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, this, is David, okay. this is David Lance Callahan, I'm singer in the Wolfhounds and Moonshake and my solo career also. I'm talking to Mark Shea, a performance anxiety on this podcast, uh, about my new solo LPs, English Primitive 1 and 2. Okay, are we good? We'll probably, we'll probably keep the first one, drop read out and put Shea in, I don't know why I said read, I feel very bad about that. But people always put a G, people always put a G in Callahan and annoy me, so it's here. <laughs> I'm really happy to have you on. Um, I, I'm gonna be honest. I'm a pretty much a noob to the Wolfhounds, and I mean, I remember Moonshake, but I'm kind of new. So I'm hoping that uh, my questions aren't dull 
inane and a little bit ridiculous. So please <laughs> forgive me if I ask you stuff that you've been asked a million times already. I'll try to get some interesting stories and all, but I, I've just absolutely fallen in love with the sound of the wolfhounds. Oh, great. Thank you. It's making me leave the meeting now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I did want to thank Ricky for connecting us because up until that point, I really wasn't familiar with the wolfhounds. And like I just like I was saying, I've just absolutely fallen in love with the sound of, of not just the new stuff, but the early stuff as well. Oh, great. Oh, your screen just changed. Oh, the palm trees are gone. There's a a little graphic design, but the palm trees are gone. Don't let that distract you. Don't let that distract you because it's clearly had no. All, all, all that happened is while I was talking to you, I, I just removed the filter, and it doesn't seem to have helped anything particularly. Just, just make just make the background more boring. Yeah. About that. <laughs> Well, that's all right. Do continue because you're flattering me. So okay, yes, sir, yes, sir. (laughs) But uh, I can see you. Oh, good. I I don't know if that's good or bad. To be honest with you, (laughs) depends on your perspective, I guess. (laughs) I did just get a haircut though, so. Oh, well, I did too, but I can't show you that. I like to find out a little bit about how you got into music in the first place. What was impacting you growing up? Uh, was there a lot of music in the household? Were your family creative? So what was uh, what was life like for you musically as a kid? There was very, my parents had very few records. I wouldn't say they were musical. Um, but but uh, in some respects, the records were quite good. I would say um, that there's there was some of them. Some of my favourite records were, were were my dad's, and I I still rate me, me and Bobby McGee by Chris Christopherson, uh, Gunfighter Ballads and Trail Songs by Marty Robbins. It, oh my! There was, was a bit of country. That it was country and rock and roll, but a limited amount. And my mum liked Nat King Cole and Frank Sinatra, and I still like them too. You know, so I'm so glad um, you mentioned that Marty Robbins album because I I had. One of my favorite albums growing up as it was Return of the Gunfighter. Uh, it was just, ah, yes. I absolutely, yes, I loved it. I think they had the same cover. <laughs> but, <laughs> pretty, pretty much, yeah. He, he, he made it, he milks the kind of a fake cowboy thing for quite a while. But some of the yes. songs were just really good, you know. So, oh, yeah. I, I, wrote a, I wrote an essay on, on the master's call from that, from that, that LP oh, for a website last year. That's. Oh, can I would love to read that because that Master's Call is possibly one of my favorite Marty Robbins songs ever. Mm, it's kind of it's weird. I'm not religious at all, but it's it's really spooky and gives the old chills down the spine, despite the fact that I don't believe in any of it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just maybe it spits you at an early age or something. But yeah, that was the only kind of real, apart from the kind of just radio in shops and things. That was the only kind of real contact I had with music until. It's a kind of a similar story for a lot of Brits, really, because I was just watching this uh, this uh, weekly show on a Sunday called the London Weekend Weekend Show, and they were in the I think it must have been maybe October or November nineteen seventy six, and they were they were covering this new phenomenon of punk rock and had the Sex Pistols on it, and I just thought it was incredibly exciting. I was twelve at the time. I got I, I got given a voucher for a local record shop for Christmas and went and bought my first three LPs, which were Stupidity by Dr. Feelgood, Who's Next by The Who, and Sergeant Pepper. 
I'm not, I'm not a big fan of Sergeant Pepper anymore, but, but the other two I've still got. Oh, cool. Um, but then it was just the right time for, for to start listening to like the John Peel show and things like that. And yeah, the, the first time I, I kind of listened to it was, I think it was February 77 and they had, um, live set well, or pre-recorded sessions by the dams and this heat, both of which I, at the time in my young mind thought were punk rock. Yeah. And so I still <laughs> do, do, do like the idea of experimental weirdness and noise as both as being punk rock, if you see what I mean. Yeah. It would just set me on the, I really haven't diverged, diverged from that path really. Oh, I got when I was about 11, 12 years old, you know, it's just the same thing really. Even what I do now on the latest solo album, there's kind of a bit of post-punk and punk on it, and it's probably influenced by folk and country. Yeah, yeah <laughs> so. that, you know, that I can see that and, and listening to it. I definitely hear a lot of different influences in, in the solo album. It It's actually quite diverse, and I'm fascinated by it, and I definitely want to get into that soon, but what was your first instrument, and how did you get started? Was, I mean, was it guitar, and how did you get into playing? It was it was just a, a cheap acoustic guitar, and I had like about a couple of lessons, and the guide really didn't want to teach me what I wanted to to learn. So <laughs> I, I managed to learn about four chords, and after that, I just started making up my own. So someone someone at school I think showed me how to do bar chords, which is when you put your index finger over the frets to change key, if you like. And you know, I just made up my own after that. Just enjoyed drones and discordant stuff and making things sound a bit odd and stuff it was always i think a lot of guitarists do that kind of thing anyway but but it, was, it seemed unique to me i even messed around with different tunings for a while made up tunings and stuff. Oh, that's kind of the way i got into guitar as well just trying to make something i hadn't heard before so i was looking up all these kind of weird tunings and that's the only reason I actually bought a tuner for my guitar <laughs> was to find, make was to get an alternate tuning. I guess I wasn't. Didn't we have, didn't we have a tuner? We used to have these little these blowpipes with the six notes on, and they go out of tune quite often. Oh man! So like, a, like a little six note harmonica, and you tune your guitar to that. Oh yeah. And when you went to the studio, you, you, you tune to a piano, so you had to kind of hope that they actually got the piano professionally tuned in the, in the recent <laughs> recent past. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was, it, was, it, was, it was partly I learned a few things and then I, I think the thing about I'm not, not massively into kind of punk rock as it's called as it is now but mm -hmm. being around at that time was a, was a great enabler it kind of you, you didn't think you had to be a musician to this is such a cliche but you, didn't, you didn't need to be a musician to make music you right. kind of learned it as, on, on the job you know, so so that's what I did, and, and I've not really ever been scared of trying to play a, an instrument that I don't know how to play. So most of my overdubs are like one finger on a keyboard or a violin or whatever happens to be handy. You know? Oh wow! And that's that's why I embraced sampling technology so early in Moonshape because it was just kind of work. I can manipulate all these amazing sounds without you know you don't you didn't need to learn to play cello and violin or hire an orchestra. You could just like grab a, a dust-spattered second-hand <laughs> Mantovani-type record and sample a few things off that and then play around with it. And it, it, it was just so much fun, you know? And, oh, and, yeah. and it was immediately hands-on. You didn't have to be trained like a Zen master for years on something. I'm, I'm, right. I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not disrespectful of incredibly good musicians. But no, it, no, I, no. I, I, took, I took shortcuts. And, right. and I enjoyed making those shortcuts. 
and they lead you to a different creative place than perhaps training was, you know? Oh, yeah. And th now all that was brand new at the time you started getting into it, too. Well, so it's, 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 a, it's a way of retaining your kind of childlike wonder at things. I still yeah. have that now, and I'm like 58 in a month's time, you know? So but I, I still like to try and, try and retain that kind of a guileless amazement <laughs> at stuff if I can. Were you Tempered by adult cynicism, of course. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Without a healthy mind, being truly happy and at peace is hard. The good news is therapy works. But what is therapy exactly? It's whatever you want it to be. Maybe you're not feeling motivated right now and would like some tools to help. Or maybe you're feeling insecure in relationships or at work, not dealing well with the stress. Whatever you need, it's time to stop being ashamed of normal human struggles and start feeling better because you deserve to be happy. And now you don't have to worry about finding an in-person therapist near you to help. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. Try doing that in person. So join the millions of people who are seeing what online therapy is really about. It's always a good time to invest in yourself because you are your greatest asset. And a special offer to Performance Anxiety listeners, you can get 10% off your first month of professional therapy at betterhelp.com slash performanceanxiety. That's betterhelp.com slash performanceanxiety. Thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring this podcast. Now, were you singing from the start, or was that something that came a little bit later on? No, and, and, and even though I was the singer in most of my bands, I, I haven't even considered myself a singer until the last few years, really. Um, I can kind of sing a little bit now and have a tone to my voice that is listenable, but before then I considered myself a vocalist. I considered myself more from the, the kind of Bob Dylan school than the Mario Lanza school, uh -huh. you know, so... <laughs> okay, but, but now I can actually hold a tune. I've got a couple of octaves, and it doesn't sound as harsh as it used to. I'm, I don't really like my my voice on anything up until this de this decade, really. I know what you mean. Um, Editing my podcast is a is, is daunting every time I do it. <laughs> God, my voice is awful. Hate yeah, it. It's, 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 People like John Lennon hated their voice and stuff. It's, it's, it, it, there's a good precedent for, yeah. for not liking my voice. It does separate, you know, the the men from the boys. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the, the wheat from the chaff, as I like. I think the chaff, the wheat goes. You know, <laughs> and I was 13 when I started playing, and and, and probably started messing around, forming bands. 14, 15. Uh, we had me. Me and Paul, who went on to be the first guitarist in the Wolfhounds, had had a a little kind of post-punk type band called Twenty Two Thousand Flowers with another kid from school called Dave Lewin, and we used to assemble in Dave's kind of parents' lounge when they weren't in and play like uh, Casio keyboards and melodicas with guitars and a cheap bass. Paul was lucky enough; he lived in a I guess what you call a, a project in the States, there's like council flats, as we call them here. Okay. And the woman upstairs, her, her son used to beat her up and she chucked him out in the end. And oh, he wow. had a bass and a guitar and a, an amp or two. And out of spite, she brought, she knew that 
pool and the flat downstairs was interested in music and brought all this equipment down and just gave it to him. Oh, wow. It was, it was just for nothing. And it was, it, was, it was all cheap. You know, it was, it was not very good equipment, but it meant that we had this, essentially we'd been given, apart from drums, we'd been given a band's instruments to, to mess around with. It was like, great. Oh, um, it's all, and I, I still have tapes of it. It doesn't sound too bad. It sounds like the, very much the kind of thing you might have found on Rough Trade in 1978 on the 79. You know, so. Oh, that is awesome. <laughs> yeah, I found a release, well, I, I guess more, more of a song, and uh, it was Shelter from the Rain by the Changelings. Was that the first thing that you ever recorded and had released? Yes. Yes, it was. Yeah, that was okay. a, a song I wrote when I was 15. Changing was just kind of our kind of sixties garage band, but we tried a few originals. We there was a there was a if you like a mod revival band from Romford where he lives called the Purple Hearts, and um, we were kind of friends with one of the guitarists younger. Well, we were kind of friends with 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 them just from hanging around as kind of younger mascots. And, yeah. and the, the guitarist and the, and the singer of the Purple Hearts really liked. You know the kind of '60s garage music you got on Nuggets and Pebbles albums. At the oh time. yeah, and, and, uh, and but they couldn't play that in the Purple Hearts, so they they knew that us younger kids were were getting into all this stuff. So they just you know probably sitting around their their house having a spliff and and just kind of suggested <laughs> forming a '60s garage band. And I remember through here through Bob Manton, the, the Purple Hearts singer, hearing things like John's Children and Freak Beat stuff for the first time, and really, really, get, really delving deep into that kind of sixties garage thing. And we decided to form this band, The Changelings, and we used to do covers of like things like Seeds, Thirteen for Elevator, Stand There, The Doors, Love, stuff like that. Oh, quite, my. quite brutally though, not not very subtly, but <laughs> pretty, in a very punk rock way. We started getting quite a few gigs with. Bands like the Milkshakes, which Billy Childish had, and and wow. Stingrays, and bands like this in kind of garage clubs in London. And oh, man, me and Paul, who was also joined the band too, started introducing our own originals. At which point, the Purple Hearts guys went away and started carrying on with their main band, and we were left with this band, the Changelings, and which have kind of mutated into the Wolfhounds once we'd started to write. Okay, mostly our own stuff. Okay, that, um, that makes sense. With them. And then it started getting more kind of post-punk than, uh, rather than the 60s garage, but the modern bands I liked at the time, other than the kind of rough trade stuff, which was nearly over by then, really, were bands like the Gun Club, the Fall, the Birthday Party, kind uh, of stuff with a, with a bluesy or velvet underground edge, but had, had, a, had very kind of literate singers, you know, the, yeah. the band, People who wanted to do stuff with the lyrics that wasn't quite as the, quite much. Though I love stuff like Cold Water. It wasn't that kind of thing. It was like a a more kind of a descriptive and in some ways experimental way of writing words. You know, right? Yeah. And I really admired. I thought Jeffrey Je Pierce and Nick yes. Cave and Mark Smith were great lyricists. I like the Cramps as well. They were very witty. That was the stuff I was kind of hanging my hopes on in kind of the sort of eighty three, eighty four, really. You know. Yeah. But so um, yeah, we kind of and and. 
we'd kind of <laughs> we'd be infected with the kind of anti-rock idea of of a kind of post-punk bands, and so you know we, we weren't really we, we still retain the idea of not doing long solos, keeping things brief, mm-hmm. keeping things uh, short and sharp and shocking. You know, yeah. I guess it was late. Later, it started to be called indie, but we were kind of doing it kind of blindly, just trying to sound like what we wanted to, you know, ourselves really more than anything else, you know. Right. Yeah. So we started. Hearing, we started hearing kind of those kind of post-hardcore bands like Sonic Youth and the early big black records and things like that, and all that stuff was feeding in, you know. And then later, we started to hear hip hop, of course, in the late eighties, and even that started feeding in, you know. Yeah. But it was. It was I, I have this theory about how how my music's developed but how a lot of pop music develops in, in that how it, how it happens is you try and imitate things but you're so inept that it can't help but come out of sounding like yourself <laughs> you know so you're just, you're just not good enough to be anyone else so you, you but you can be excellent at being yourself you know oh that's that's brilliant <laughs> i love that <laughs> well that, that that goes into the new record is that, that nearly everything on the on primitive one and two which is coming out later this year is basically i i wanted to as a little private hobby, I was trying to imitate the tunings of West African guitarists, you know, like the kind of desert blues people they call a Malian kind of stuff. Yeah. And I'd read somewhere that they, that they used a, a, an open G. I don't really know what an open G is, so I tuned my guitar to a G chord, and it didn't quite work. And then I took a note out of it and tuned it down, and suddenly I had this kind of tuning that did sound a bit like West African guitarists, oh, wow. but also didn't, and had, had bits of spoken rock and roll elements too okay but i really liked it and i just i've, I've come to this about five years ago and I've, since then i've written more than 100 songs using this tuning it's just a completely wow kind of work a day blank canvas tuning for and whenever i pick up the guitar i play something different and uh, and it's just a, one of those lucky accidents there's like you know half the, most of the, actually probably half the songs in the last wolfhounds lp and almost all the songs on these two solo LPs are written in that tuning. And there's also another two LPs worth of stuff I've written that I can't do anything <laughs> with yet because it's not the time, you know? That's so incredible. It's just one of those little breaks. Sometimes in your, in your musical or creative career, you just have break, breakthroughs and they, they, they feed you for years afterwards, you know, and, that, and this tuning was one of those things. You know? That's amazing. Oh, my God. So I have, I have a couple questions about some, the early years of wolfhounds first of all how did you guys pick the name wolfhounds because i actually, i love that name <laughs> i love i love wolfhounds my aunt had a few i've just stuck with it I, when i was 15 16 i had older friends one of whom just got was this guy malcolm who'd been in a, a local punk band called on the outside and i kind of known him from the youth club and going out and about sitting in graveyards drinking cider and doing speed <laughs> and stuff and then and, and he, he, he i knew he was into music he loved the clash and one or two other things probably i think and stuff like this and he had for some reason he he decided that he wanted his band to be called nasal spray and the wolfhounds and i've got no idea why he did that but we we did a couple of gigs doing that and and we did a cover version i think of baby come back by the equals and oh my God. one or two other things Kind of, the whole thing seems it, it kind of absurd. It was just kind of like a, a an odd thing. But we did two gigs and then broke up, and he went off to Leeds University, and I never saw him again, even though I liked the guy. But um, oh man, um, 
But then we needed, we had some gigs coming up, didn't like being called the Changelings and decided that we'd go under the name the Wolfhounds and suddenly we started getting reviews and we were stuck with it. So. <laughs> that is hilarious. <laughs> what exactly was the C86 scene? Because I'm not familiar with how that came about and who was involved and in, in how that whole scene developed. In the early to mid 80s, the, the biggest selling music paper was New Music Express. Right. And every few months, they, they would do a comp. They would, what, what would happen is they would, they would have a compilation cassette of hand picked kind of songs that the writers on the, on the paper liked. Yes. And what you would do is you'd buy, you'd buy a, few issue, a few issues of NME. Um, and then you would send the vouchers off and get this cassette through the post, and they'd be compilations of blues and jazz and torch songs. And okay. in 1981, they did C81, which which had all the post-punk stuff on, like Perubu, Scrutability, and so forth. Okay. They decided to do a kind of, if you like, a test of the pulse of the independent scene in the mid-'80s with a cassette called C86. And we were lucky or unlucky enough to be asked to be on it. And <laughs> they'd give you like a... I can't remember, maybe £100, and you'd go to a studio and record a song for this cassette. Foolishly, um, we, we decided we'd get rid of a song we didn't really like, because, of course, no one would buy this cassette and no one would be interested in this free cassette. We'd just put a song that we wanted to get rid of on there, so that's what we did. should we say, who are more uh, canny than us, like Primal Scream and the Bodines, decided to put their best songs on there. <laughs> and as the cassette went off, went on to sell 60,000 through mail order, and then I think another 40 or 50,000 when it was released as a record, they were they were very clever and correct. <laughs> so we, 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 were, we were incredibly stupid and dumb. Um like I, as, you, as you might have gathered from my story so far, we kind of blundered into the music industry. We, we didn't think, we didn't really think we would get anywhere. We didn't think really think we would do anything. But we we did view it as a kind of essential creative kind of outlet, which is our only saviour, really. Wow. <laughs> so at that time, were were you guys considering music as a full time job? Was it something you were aspiring to, or were you able to to do that? There's nothing like that. We just didn't think it would ever happen. Wow. So, and then it suddenly, it kind of, what it was happening, and it, it led to a great deal of confusion in the ranks. So, you know, it's kind of, it, at some point, you had to kind of make a decision about whether you were going to pursue this as your main thing in life you were going to do or right. not. And some members dropped out because they didn't have that faith in themselves. Others remained because somehow we managed to keep imposter syndrome at such a level that we could carry on doing it. <laughs> so, so that's <laughs> so we ended up for being poverty-stricken touring bands yeah. until that nineteen ninety. What was touring like for you guys back in? in cause this was around the mid eighties or so, right? Yeah. Were you able to, to so, yeah. go around touring, or did you have to stay local? And and what? What were you guys? What was it like? Because I'm not familiar really with the, I, I, for lack of a better term, the con, I guess the conditions you guys were had to endure as a touring band. 
the conditions would be uh, in this country at least it would be sitting in the back illegally in the back of the transit van on the equipment and <laughs> um, being driven around you know England and Scotland and sleeping on people's sofas and floors um, but often getting quite good crowds in the clubs and so forth oh, okay. um, we, 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 did, we, did, we did manage to tour uh, the continent you know the continental Europe quite a lot we did a lot of shows in Holland, Belgium, France, Germany. So we didn't quite make it to the States. We had, just when we broke up, we had interest off of uh, what was then Homestead Records and became Matador, but we broke up before we could really follow that up. Though, though Gerard Corsloy at Homestead, who later went on to be the head guy at Matador, did eventually sign Moonshake. So he, he had a bit of future faith in what I was doing. As did Alan McGee. We, we were about to sign to Creation as the Wolfhounds, and then that all fell apart. But he, he and his partner, Dick Green, gave Moonshake a kind of a, a development deal, if you like. Oh, okay. To, and put out the first record on creation, so we, we were able to do that. But, uh, but yeah, most of the time we were, we were battling against kind of a... The, 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 it's now a genre and people seem to respect it. Uh, C86 was more of a kind of... It was like being tar, tarred with a... You know, I don't know, late earmarked as, a, as losers at the time. Oh wow! Um, you, 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 you spent six months being the dog's bollocks here, and 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 kind of everyone thinking you were fantastic, and then the next kind of five years trying to live it down. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> now we only had a few songs that even sounded that even fit in with that kind of jangly pop thing. You know, the rest of our stuff was either noisy or a bit weird. You know that? Yeah, and that's the thing that I loved as I was listening to the Wolfhounds albums. I loved. All the noise. I loved how each album seemed to, just for me as as only recently initiated into the Wolfhounds, it, they seem to get noisier with each one, and I, I'm obsessed with that sound. There's a definite, not so much progression as regression here. Yeah. I, I always <laughs> like that. You know, one of my favorite bands when I was a kid was the Birthday Party, and they sounded yeah. off. As, they started off as quite tame, kind of almost like post Roxy music kind of boy pop band then gradually get more and more weird and freaky as, as, as it goes on. And I kind of like, quite like that trajectory, really. It doesn't necessarily sell you records, but it makes it much more exciting <laughs> to, to, to be in the band. Yeah, for the people who do listen, too, it gets more exciting for them, too. <laughs> well, I hope so. At least, at least it's, it's a, you know, a, a, a small amount of people anyway certainly appreciated it, I think. Well, that's what I loved about it, because I, I listened to the first one, and I, I tried to listen to them in order, and... By the time we got to write a passage, which I love, that's that's just an incredible track. And Blue Nowhere, oh my gosh, those are just amazing songs. about guitar architecture it's mm. a very interesting track to me because it to me it sounds like um like an avant-garde or art rock type of song something in the vein of like a reese chatham or, or glenn branca 
Were, were you interested in in that scene at all? Was that any with were there any influences? Yeah, that from was that? kind of. The is just a throwaway track from from a you know the last CD, and it it was really meant to be aping Reese Chatham or something, you know. Oh, okay. Um, but um, it's, it's, it's kind of it's probably about the least important one on the CD as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> Maybe I mean, that's... I think, I think Rich <laughs> and Glenn Branca and so forth had already done that. We didn't need to do it. So it was a bit of a, bit of a silly, youthful indulgence, really. Ah, but the, I the, like the, it. The best, the, the best stuff on that is the, is our you know our mainstream Wolfhounds kind of things like you know I guess I guess like kind of I can't even remember what's on their gutter charity and things like that. You know? issue for us really it was kind of like a throwaway cd track really oh um, maybe that's why it stuck it stuck out for me hmm. so it's something you could do the ironing too i guess without too much distraction <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be right back after a word from our sponsors so at what point did you guys decide that, that the band was done was it a like a, a mutual thing or were you guys just was I guess, I guess the most simple way to ask this is why did the band break up initially uh, because we'd done four LPs and we were still rehearsing in our parents front rooms and we still had no money and no you know people would still put our records out but it just seemed time to move on really we were like you know in our late 20s it's kind of still kind of hand to mouth it just didn't seem right really you know yeah so we just had just had enough we just had enough of it i probably now in retrospect if i think back to it probably we could have carried on with that name and developed maybe the way that moonshake went and probably done okay but um but it just seemed time for something new really and i, I during during the recordings of the last two wolfhounds records like blown away and uh attitude i'd managed to get my hands on the sampler a few times and was really excited by what they could do and at the same time, I thought I, 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 was, I was much more kind of grown out of just thrashing noise, really. And was, uh, I kind of listened, listening back to things like Pill and discovering Krautrock, like Can and Faust and things. And uh, it seemed like all those elements could combine to make something exciting. And originally, at the end of the Wolfhounds, the original idea for Moonshake was to have kind of a metal box type rhythm section with lots of samples and harmonies like the birds over the top. and Okay. I don't know. That still sounds like a still sounds like a fantastic band to me, and no one's done that. But, yeah. <laughs> but um, that's, not, that's not how it turned out. Though most of those elements were in there, the harmonies I couldn't read to, um, but uh, but everything else ended up as it was. You know. So, did you jump into Moonshake immediately afterwards, or did you kind of did you take a break and? Yeah, it's pretty seamless. Okay. No, it's, 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 it's well. There's a break for the fact that the band broke up, and I was trying to put another one together. Yeah, yeah. But really. <laughs> 
you know, the Wolfhounds finished in 1990. By 1991, I had a new band and a new contract and was working on a new direction. Now it doesn't sound so much kind of, you can hear that here where you can hear the direction going through all the records, but at the time yeah. it seemed like a radical change, you know? Right. <laughs> the first EP has a definite creation record sound to me. I mean... Is that something that, that... Yeah, we got in the studio and the songs are pretty good but yeah. um, we hadn't we hadn't really formulated our sound and we kind of we kind of handed the reins over a bit to to a guy who was engineering the session because we kind of really hadn't got our direction together and he did a lot of the techniques he was using on bands he was working with at the time was oh. like my big valentine and stuff like that in retrospect we should have waited a bit longer to record and started you know out bang with second hand clothes the second single but um that's not what happened and guy carried on working with us and he was very good at uh, directing mine and margaret my co-writer in the band's kind of uh whims and and ambitions after that but the first one was a very cut it a lot of people like that i mean it's quite as far as the shoegazing record goes it's pretty psychedelic and out there yeah but um, so so I, I'm not ashamed of it, but it just wasn't what we wanted to do. Well, out of that, I mean, I, I listened to "Coming" over and over again. That song sounds—it just has this menacing feel to it. I I love that track. version on a John Peel session that's coming out um, we're reissuing the first Mooncheck album Eva Luna oh, with awesome. extra tracks and, and the, the John Peel session on it and there's a if you listen to the version of coming on that it's I mean the arrangement's pretty similar but but you can hear what a year touring has done to it and it's it's, it's really full on and oh. makes me I, I listened back to it recently for the purposes of, of putting it on that record and it and I thought this is a this is I can see we were really on the ball live. You know, this sounds like a really tight band at the peak of their powers. So I was I was really pleased about that. But the, the song's good, yeah. Oh, I can't wait to hear that. Man. Yeah, it's really, it's really full on. It's great. That's I love hearing how songs develop live. That's I, I love hearing the, the progression. Yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a luxury being able to hear it back if you're in the actual band because often you you write a song and, and then you go straight into the studio and record it and then after that you kind of hone it live. We try to avoid that in the Wolfhounds at least by modelling ourselves a bit more more like bands like Wire and The Fall where you'd go and see them play after a new LP and they'd already be playing the next one. You know, Joy Division were like that a bit as well. Yeah. And we couldn't do that so much in Moonshape because it was so technologically kind of oriented. So we, we would be playing, we'll always be playing the songs live in retrospect, but they would evolve live. 
And it's a shame a lot of, some of that wasn't captured so much, you know. And that's one thing that always surprises me about things like the Peel sessions and things like that is I always hear how BBC would always record over their tapes and to see how much stuff actually survived is amazing. Yeah, they usually to undervalue a lot of what, in retrospect, is quite uh, culturally important back in those days. So, yeah, they would erase a lot of, you know, or reuse tapes. Um, yeah. Fortunately, ours survived, and the Walkround sessions survived as well. We put those out on an LP a few years ago, and, it, it, you know, everything we did for the BBC survived. So I'm pleased about that. Awesome! Oh man, I'm I'm excited to to hear all this stuff because I love Peel sessions because they're always you know since you have a limited, you, you, I think it's what you do a, a live take and then you you allow like one overdub and then it's it's done. Is that kind of yeah, how it, it works? It's all done in one day. That's yeah, one day you just basically bash it out live, and if you're lucky, you get the chance to to do it on an overdub a piano or a guitar line on one song. And, Man. Yeah, basically, only the vocals were generally overdubbed on those things. So. I love it because I love hearing like the raw versions of the tracks <laughs> that I already like. like I, I kind of like when things get stripped down and, and it's a more, a more of a live feel to it. It's always more exciting to me. It, it is, and, and often, you know, bands have often said that they, they did better versions in the Peel sessions because of that discipline than they did when they were allowed free reign in the studio. Yeah, that that's a recurring theme I've discovered on this podcast, is that when you you get more creative when you have limitations and deadlines. I, I think that's definitely the case, you know, and I, no one likes a deadline, but, but right. it definitely forces you to do work, you know? Yeah. So, um the thing about modern technology, you know, there, I have a whole recording studio on my laptop that I'm speaking to you through now, and I have a, a house with rooms that I can record instruments in and microphones. Basically, the, the first Moonshake album, Eva Luna, which cost about £20,000 at the time, I guess about $30,000 to record, which was a only a modest budget at the time. Yeah. I could do that for less than two thousand pounds at home now, you know? Yeah, it's crazy. Um, but that makes you undisciplined. That means you're, you know, you can carry on recording and redoing things and mixing them forever. Yeah. So the good thing about having a record to put out is that it, it focuses you. You know, you, you realize you have to have these songs be coherent together, as we've done by a certain time for them to come out on a record or a CD. And it, you know, it, basically, it, you could start a music website and you could just keep remixing and rejigging all your songs and, I guess, have people following you and just hearing the new verses all the time. And it could go on until you die. Yeah, but the whole point of a, a creative act is to, is to have a finished thing, and the the act the act of actually releasing physical uh, media and playing physical gigs focuses your mind on that. You know? Oh yeah, I mean, the last thing you want to do is become Axl Rose and uh, delay an album for sixteen years, and then have everybody think, why why did we wait sixteen years for this? I'd say that about you know I'd say that about anything he does. Uh, you know, honestly, I would too. I'm not a 
it's, it's all a matter of taste, but I'd be wondering why I wasted, wasted 16 seconds waiting yeah. for it. You know? <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure he'd be fine to say the same thing about me, so that would, <laughs> or it wouldn't even consider me. He so. did go uh, deeper into the electronic and, and dub sounds with Moonshake. Was that a direction you wanted to do since the Wolfhounds? I mean, was that something that you thought of that you could do with with that band, or was that something that developed more with Moonshake? No, it was, it was ambitions I had at the time. The, the, the players in, in in the band, I, I think, as far as indie bands go, we had one of the one of the better rhythm rhythm uh, sections in in the Wolfhounds. Yeah, uh, but they, I just I just listened to, I started listening to much more hip hop, much more dub, much more kind of a even jazz and stuff like that. And okay. and I figured that there, there was there wasn't enough of those influences in kind of underground British music, and and I could see a massive great kind of gap in the creative market that I could fit this in. And uh, there was no other reason other than to go for it, really, because no one else was doing it. And if they were doing it, they were doing it in a very commercialised way. And I thought there was there was a whole lot a whole lot of stuff that could be said with those forms that wasn't being said and that I could relate to and could hopefully cause other people to relate to. And I was right to a certain degree. So. Oh, yeah. And America really took to, took to us. We, we toured States loads, you know? Oh, I, yeah. I remember seeing Moonshake albums. And I, I, like I said, I don't remember the Wolfhounds, which, you know, I, mm. I, I don't know how how well distributed they were in the U.S., but uh, I definitely... Yeah, we, never, we never got released in the, in the States. I remember when... Um, Finally got to Los Angeles with Moonshake, and there was a big queue of people with Wolfhounds records to sign, and they'd, they'd all bought them on import for like two or three times the cost they would be over here. You know? Yeah, I, oh, um, I remember doing that. Yeah, Moonshake records were Moonshake records were all all released in the states, and I mean, we, obviously, we weren't in the charts or anything like that, but they but we did we did pretty well for attention and got to tour the you know the country, North America quite a few times. You know, and we did a lot of Palooza and did, I did I did a three I, months tour, and we did a lot of Palooza parties and things like that. Yeah, I just wanted to ask if, the, if I, I thought I remember seeing uh, something about Lollapalooza, but you guys kind of got screwed on that, if I remember right. Well, I wouldn't say that. It's just, it's just, we, we were kind of, we wanted to do it, but um, it, I'm not sure we were a good fit for it. That's always, it's, it's a bit exaggerated. I wasn't pissed off with Lollapalooza. I just kind of, we weren't going to be on the main stage. We weren't big enough, but we were kind of stuck on the back of a lorry as, as a side issue and... While I while I got on and on with and liked some of the bands on on the second and third stages, it just it just wasn't a good fit. That's all for us. You know, we were we were a club and, and concert hall bands really out in the open. Our kind of music it went down well sometimes, sometimes really well. Um, there was a show we did in Vermont that was fantastic. It was in the rain and people just went oh. mad and it was great. Oh, that is um, awesome. But sometimes it was just like people were just looking at you and you were looking back at them. It was like, it was like you're coming and <laughs> I, I, went, I went on an expedition to Madagascar once and I was in a hammock and I felt a lot of shaking on the tree. And I woke up and it was at dawn and I looked up and there was a lemur looking at me frozen, just looking at me. And I was looking at it frozen. And that was kind of how we were like on stage on a Lollapalooza crowd. We, they were the lemurs staring at us. And I was the human being staring at them. And none, none of us knew what the hell we were looking at. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a convoluted way of saying it. But, you know. That is, oh my gosh. I, can, I actually can picture that. And I've, I've got to say, I, I was guilty of some of that, that on some of the Lollapaloozas that I saw for second and third stage acts too so I know oh, exactly so, what you mean 
if I was watching Guns N' Roses, I'd be looking at them like I was Lima, who, who you know didn't understand what I was looking at. <laughs> Bingo. <laughs> <laughs> so what? I know after the uh, the Big Good Angel album, the band kind of basically just split in half, didn't it? And was that yeah. a difference in songwriting, or was it uh, just guys being you guys being together too much? What, what happened? No, I think it's a, it's a communication problem. You know, it's, it's, I mean, a creative relationship is pretty much like a, you know, like any other relationship. It's kind of you have to be able to communicate. Yeah. And and I don't think me and Margaret, who pretty much shared the writing credits equally, we we ended up having two quite different ideas of of how we should be developing and not talking about them with each other, which uh, inevitably causes rifts. Um, yeah. And, I, and I'm, I'm as much to blame for that as she is. In retrospect, I think we should have tried to work harder at that. I, I, we talked about it recently. We're still kind of, we're still friends. Okay. Uh, we weren't for a long time, but we've, we've met each other in the last few years and, and we get on, you know, it's, we like each other. But um, having talked about it recently with her just in passing, we, we, we figured that lineup of the band could easily have had two more LPs in it and if we'd like kind of just kind of been a bit more mature and talked and communicated a bit more we could have got those two albums out of us you know but it's, it's just a shame really aside if you took the best songs off like her LPs which is the band she did afterwards and the best songs out of the post her lineup Moonshake LPs you probably get LPs that are just as great as the first one you know so oh, if not better yeah. well I went back to listen because when the Moonshake stuff came out I, I was into like super heavy stuff and to my Ooh. own uh, detriment I, I didn't listen to a lot of stuff outside of, I don't know. I, I, when this stuff came out, I would say probably grungier metal stuff. So going back, mm. I find that I actually enjoy Moonshake a lot more now than I would have back then. So I, mm. I'm really glad I did get a chance to go back and listen because the, the stuff it's wonderful stuff. And I like how you got into the more jazzier sounds we weren't expecting to be massive. I mean, we were hoping that maybe luck would happen and we'd be like a, a big kind of particularly distinctive sounding, you know, alternative band like, like, you know, New Order or Nick Cave and the Bad Seas or Hot mm. Twins if we were lucky with, you know, that kind of something, something that sounds like nobody else and is quite popular. But as it turned out, we, we were something that sounded like nobody else and unpopular. <laughs> but, um, that, well, that wasn't intentional, but we were always making it, that it could be timeless or listened to in the future. And so it, it is being rediscovered and it further awaits rediscovery. Because I, I don't think, I think looking back, whether you like the records or not, they sound like they could have been recorded yesterday rather than 30 years ago. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. So we, we always had our mind on this. This is not for now. This is not to compete with Jesus Jones or, or you know, or the, the screaming trees. This is to compete with nothing but ourselves, you know? Yeah. I, just 
stumbled across a one sentence in my notes and I was something I wanted to ask, but I actually just kind of flipped over it for some reason. Early on, when you guys were first forming the Wolfhounds, I heard a story that, and I believe it was the Wolfhounds, that you signed a record deal or agreed to a record deal over the phone because you didn't want to wake your mom up at like 2 a.m.? Did somebody call you at like 2 a.m.? It's true, yeah. It's the, I, I just gave a demo tape to, to someone I was introduced to, a June Bride's gig at the time. It would have been uh, 1985, I think. I was still living at home then. And, and yeah, the guy rang me up at 2 in the morning, the bastard. <laughs> and and, and I, I, I agreed to sign to the, to the label just to get rid of him, but my mum had already woken up, so oh. you know, all that went wrong, really. And then I just went into rehearsal next week and said, oh, we appear to, we appear to have a record deal. You fancy it, and everyone here will yeah, we'll put one out, see how it goes. Oh my God. <laughs> no one that excited, to be honest. But actually, in privately, I think we were all excited. And when we got the first test pressings home, we were like, fucking hell, this is amazing. You know, we've got a record out. And then when it was actually played on the radio, it was just like awesome, you know? That's incredible. And then, oh. it, then it got like single of the week in all the music papers as well. So it was, you know, it was, it was all, it all came too easily, really. I don't, I don't think we really valued it. It's, it's, we kind of always, we, we just always thought it was just the luck was going to run out to the very next day and, and you know I mean shortly after it did that was probably our, our fault for having that attitude really if we did a bit more kind of like oh we, we deserve this this is what we, we should get then we might have been a bit more successful you know? maybe it's it's hard to say but it's hard to fight that feeling if, if that's kind of who you are because that's honestly that's the way I, I feel with this podcast like when I, I ask somebody to be anybody really to come on and, and do an episode and they agree to it. I'm just kind of like, really? Okay. <laughs> I appreciate that. I, I'm kind of shocked. All right. Yeah, I, I, was thought, yeah, I always thought this was a cultural difference though, between Americans and, and English because, um, you know, we have a, we have much more of a class system. I mean, you have, you have a more kind of a monetary based class system. Oh, we yeah. have an actual kind of genetically based class system. Yeah. And, and, if you're from a working class background, which which we were in the Wolfhounds, you kind of um, partly have a chip on your shoulder with resentment against your kind of relatively lowly lot in life. Yeah. And you also have what I called earlier, you know, what's called a imposter syndrome. You mm -hmm. don't think you deserve these chances you're getting because like it's not for the likes of you. So unless you're consciously aware of that, it affects most of the things you do. It's kind of inbred in you, you know? Whereas Americans yeah. have to much more kind of gung ho, like you know, of course I deserve this. You know, I'll get there in the end. You know, we're not, we're not, we're just millionaires in waiting. You know. Yeah. Well, hey, <laughs> I, perhaps it's it's the my Irish DNA that I have that because I, well, I, I have some I have some of that as well. That the Irish are more, less less lesser influenced by the class system. More kind of we've got nowhere lower we can go. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Anything is up from now. Exactly. <laughs> But there's a definitely a definite genetic version of I can only go up from here. So mm, yeah, well I wish I had a bit more of that. Still, yeah, but you know. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, it seems now, to... nowadays. Yeah, nowadays. Nowadays, I think I deserve everything that happens to me, bad or yeah. good. So. <laughs> but yeah, well, hey, I I actually have uh, maybe it's something that happens in in your late forties to early fifties because I've got that as well and. I, I never used to have that, so I don't. Maybe, maybe kids do it. I don't know. Well, in my forties, which is supposed to be your peak, you're supposed to get your peak earnings in your in your forties, oh, and I, I didn't notice the difference between that and my twenties. You know, so <laughs> I, I, I'm seeing favorite, 
Financially, I may well always be a loser. I don't know. Hey, well, I certainly know what I know. I've I've never had a clearer idea of what I'm doing and what I want to do creatively than than I have at this moment today. You know, so you know, it's funny you mentioned that because I was thinking that the same, uh, a similar, that if I knew what I know now and and I could tell my twenty year old or twenty twenty one year old self what I know now, things I, I would have stuck stayed the course on on a few things like college and and some rough jobs that i had and, and professional transitions i would have stayed that course a little bit more yeah it's part of being young though isn't it i mean yeah. you know I, I thought i had to drop out of college i did a year at an ecology course at, a, at what they used to call a polytechnic then which was like you know, a poor man's university but okay. i thought i had to drop out of that college to, to do the band to do gigs and make records and actually I could have done the whole of my degree and done all that, and it wouldn't, have, you know, it wouldn't have got in the way at all. But you know, that's the way it is. I had I had a <laughs> professor suggest I drop out, so that that was part. Of really? <laughs> yeah, I, I went to yeah, I, know. I went to college for <laughs> photography, and uh, my family was going through some rough times at that point, and my head was not in my studies, and uh, hmm. so he every once in a while he would do one on one meetings, and he's like, you know. You don't need a degree to be a photographer. I'm like, oh, okay. Uh, I'll take that as a, as a hint, and not, not, not so much as a hint as like, what are you doing here? Soon after that, I left. Pretty one of the most hand, definitely one of the most hands-on things you can do, isn't it? So. Oh yeah, yeah. There's good points to going to school for it, and then there's kind of like like any other trade. You really don't learn a lot until you're out doing it and and working yeah. so oh all right so what was the surplus and was that was that something that came out after moonshake was over with yeah so it was kind of um yes it was um it kind of was a, a thing i did with a, a woman called anya bukela who's singing on one of the songs on the next record okay um, oh cool it was kind of my first my first attempt to kind of combine sampling with acoustics and stuff and it, it didn't really work at the time though i kept on kept some of the songs since then they've come out on wolfhounds records and i think right. there's a i think there's one on the next kind of solo record and stuff it's, it's just oh, cool. there's a whole eclectic bunch of songs that all didn't go together but seemed to have fitted <laughs> in later with with other stuff i've done so so i kind of kept a few of them around you know oh that's awesome um yeah we kind of did about maybe six shows did some demos and that um but it never really worked and then i had kids and i had other kind of things to occupy my mind for a while so is that why you stepped away from music for a while yeah it's just easy. you can't have kids and and you have to think about uh feeding and clothing and putting a roof over people's heads a bit more clearly i did that with photography so i know i i feel like we're, we're parallel in some degrees here you know, I, I just about had to support myself through, you know, odd jobs and music on my own, but I certainly couldn't do that with a with a partner and two kids to think about. So, right. you know, I had to get jobs. It's as simple as that, really. Proper jobs. Oh, well, that's, yeah, that's cut and dry. So, so what brought the Wolfhounds yeah, back together? Um, we got asked to, uh, we basically got asked to do a show on the 20th anniversary by Bob Stanley and Etienne, who's a kind of fan of the band back in the day. Okay. Um, at, the, at the Institute of Contemporary Arts, the ICA, which, which the original C86 nights were at. 
and it was quite a nice amount of money we got offered as well. So we 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 basically two Reformation gigs, partly for fun and partly for money. And then after those, I was just chatting to Andy, the guitarist, and he just said, "Have you got any new songs?" And I said, "Oh." you know the hundreds <laughs> <laughs> and, and, they, and they said the same we, we, so we just kind of tried we just sent each other some mp3s of a few things we've been working on and they kind of just went from there really and it's, it's became, it became and continues to be an ongoing creative concern you know it's, it's nice to play in a band as well what, what i also had is, is at the end at the end of the surplus thing project if you like i kind of i kind of lost the idea of music being fun and didn't want to do it anymore really. uh, and it's got back to being it's got back to being fun again so that's why i did it again you know earning any money or getting attention is is, is kind of a just a side effect of it really it's, it's, it's fun to make yeah. music and it's interesting and, and it just wasn't before i kind of burnt myself out really so you were still writing music even though you weren't actually releasing anything Yes, even though I was a burnout and didn't really have any objects in mind, I was, I was still, I kind of got a bit of the mojo back quite, it was only, it was only a year or two where I didn't actually do any music at all. Really. Okay. So I think, I think you sometimes you just need to step back and do, do nothing. Yeah. You know, or do something else entirely. It's just even, you know, very successful musicians do that. I mean, some people make three LPs and then never do another one, you know. Yeah, yeah, it's true. <laughs> and just live off the proceeds, you know. But I, I can't really do that. It's kind of a, it's always an ongoing project. What I do, it's always a on the road to something else, you know. Yeah. So. Well, I've always thought that if if you write one hit song, you could probably live off of it. I don't know if you could do that nowadays, but eighties, nineties, you could probably do that. that. That would be lovely in many respects, <laughs> but, on, but on, the, on the other hand, it's like a death knell to anything creative. I mean, I've known one or two people who did very well with one song, and in some respects, it kind of strangled their creativity, you know? There's, there's, there's lots of people who have been number one with their first single, and then everything after that, they've, they've barely done anything, and what they have done is mediocre, you know? It's not... I never it, thought of it, it like that. <laughs> I always think of it as like, you get a number one, and then, you know, you're set. You don't have to worry about it. But yeah, I guess if if I look at it as a creative endeavor, yeah, you can you kind of you might end up screwing yourself. Well, you know, one's seen from a distance. People getting very famous indeed. It's like well, the first three REM albums really good, and then at some point, either the band or their management started going, "You guys can be the biggest band in the world," and so they start making records to to achieve that, and the quality just decreases and decreases. You know? Yeah. Absolutely. Um, you know, that you start making records with that with that kind of world domination idea in mind rather than just, uh, you know, a creative expression or having uh, some kind of creative ideal you're working towards. It becomes more... Uh, and I don't see why, you know, you can you can make enough money without without trying to be you too, you know? Yeah, exactly. And I don't even like you too. I, I don't. Uh, um, I, I find their music eternally compromised, but, uh, but other yeah. people perfectly—they're welcome to like it. I don't really have any—I don't really judge people for liking things I don't. Oh no, no, no! But I'm, I'm more—I'm more concerned. That I've always liked things because of the artistic rigor of them and things I don't find much of that. In. It's more a case of not that I find things offensive. It's more I'm just not interested in them. Exactly. I, I guess I just don't understand how they're so big. I mean, I some of the, I, I, I I do admit I will I do like some of their early stuff. I just don't understand how they're still making 
stuff that people I, I, I don't know they they like that whole big thing they did with the uh with the iphone where you bought an iphone and their album was automatically on it and you couldn't get rid of it kind of a thing <laughs> that's that's the kind of stuff oh, that, <laughs> I'm actually getting rid of it. I was very pleased about that. Yeah. <laughs> I've got rid of it with, with a day of receiving it without ever listening to a note. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm sure that's partly how you get that big, really. But even, even, even as big as bands like that are, there's still six and a half billion people on the earth who've never heard of them and don't care about them. That's, so, that's a good point. There's <laughs> always perspective, you know? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And that's, well, that's one of the reasons I love doing this podcast is because I... It, gives me different perspectives and, and makes me think about things in a completely different way from a, a new angle. And that's why I, I really appreciate when, when I have some great artists on people, you know, people like yourself, people like Ricky, Ricky Mamie, um, help me maybe look at things from a different perspective. So it, it's, it's always fun. Good. I started listening to the reformation of the Wolfhounds and I love Cheer Up. I think that is a gr- was a great first single to release when, when the band got back together. sounds to me uh, as far as the first few singles that came out is that they're almost a similar trajectory uh sonically as the way the band came out originally the the, the first one is not as noisy as the progressive ones and I, but i love cheer up i think it's a it's 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 a fun song i think it was a great way to reintroduce the band to everybody yeah, we, do, we 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 tried to remove the uh, rude words from that, and it just didn't work. You know, like hip hop records, it's kind of you ask why they use motherfucker so much, and it's because it's so rhythmic. Yeah, and 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 the rap wouldn't work without it. And it was the same in Cheer Up as well. It, it probably would have helped us a great deal if a song that catchy had been playable on the radio. But um, unfortunately, once you removed the the the, the, word, the swear words from it, it didn't sound as good. <laughs> it, it does lose a little bit so of the. I think, I think certain people involved with the band were incredibly annoyed that the catchiest song we'd written for 30 years was pretty much unplayable on the radio. But I've, got, I've got a knack of doing that kind of thing. Really. There's, a, there's, a, there's a song I've been working on for a future, whether it's Wolfhounds or Solo thing, I don't know, but the, it's probably, again, one of the catchiest things I've written for ages, and it's just impossible to remove the swearing from it. It just cannot be done without without spoiling the song, making it not as good, so... It's stuck with it, and that's even worse. Oh, man. There's an imp of the perverse in the back of my muse who, who won't if you, yeah. forgive the twisting kind of uh, metaphors, but um, <laughs> but um, it's just, uh, I just uh, well, I'm partly Anglo Saxon, I'm going to use the vocab, you know. Oh, yeah, it's good enough for children. Well, when you guys got back together, I mean, was it 
a part-time thing? You, you all have other jobs and all at that time? Or, or do you? I guess the question yeah, is, do you? It's always part-time. That's the thing. It's kind of, even when, when I was a touring artist kind of thing, it's like, like yeah, sure, I'd earn my money for a while off the, off the tours or off royalties, but sooner or later I'd have to go and work in a record shop for three months or whatever, you know? Yeah. You know, I can never sit back and go, oh, you know, I've got either the money's rolling right in now. Right. You know, it's, it's, uh, um, that obviously is frustrating. Um, it, it's, it's kind of useful creatively because you carry on persevering, you yeah. know. But I don't write stuff to think, you know, well, this will pay for my retirement. Perhaps I should, but um, yeah. it's more kind of this. I, I write stuff because I'm chasing ideas down hard. I'm, keeping the wolf at bay with my pack of hounds you know <laughs> um, i like that do you guys do a lot of touring or i mean before i guess pre-pandemic were you doing a lot of touring or was this more of a studio kind of because we're not financially independent so we have to accept gigs when people are available because everyone's yeah. got families and when we can afford to do them uh, solo i'm going on tour for a couple of months in on and off in october and november because i can afford to to do that because it's just me and sometimes a, a drummer or a, or a singer so on a basic level the money i'm getting makes it affordable to do and justifiable to do you know yeah which is not to say that i don't do it for the money but i can't do it without right know, like many things in there you know? yeah exactly now electric music that was released right at the height of covid and the pandemic i mean was that completed Ooh. Be well before it or was it was it finished up during the pandemic or how, how did that come about um in relation to the pandemic i guess it, it has no relation to the pandemic because we we finished mixing and recording the album in october okay. the label said they could put it, out, put it out the following spring it was already being pressed and manufactured and then just covid came in, in the middle of that. to be honest like uh, we finished mixing electric music and I was like, oh, brilliant. I, could, I went away to New Zealand for a month because my girlfriend's from New Zealand and I okay. had been before. So we just just buggered off and ignored everything for a month. And when oh. I came back, within about a month, <laughs> everyone was shut away at home. But uh. fortunately, the record was all being manufactured. Unfortunately, we'd actually agreed as a band that we'd try and we'd actually put a few weeks aside and book an actual tour to promote an LP for once. Oh. But, um, of, of all the things that happened to people during COVID, that's one of the least important, but we had to scuffer our plans to do that. And it's, it's you know, I, I got COVID myself, but I'm quite currently at least relatively healthy and strong and it didn't do me in, you know, but, you know, I know so many people whose parents have died or who've yeah. had long-term, long-term effects from it. I, you know, long, long, long COVID is a thing. It is. Well, yeah, long from it. You know, it's as bad as ME or something like that, you know, so. So you, you, you've gotten through it okay then, after, since being tested positive? Yeah, and actually I found, I found lockdown gave me uh, enough freedom to do quite a lot of creative things. You know, a lot of the, yeah. a lot of these two solo records were written, written or recorded during lockdown. So, so you know, they're, they're basically offspring of a, of a global <laughs> pandemic. Was that uh, Strange Lovers? Was that, was that born uh, out of a pandemic? That's an old song, that's an old song, actually. That's an old surplus song that I kind of had around for ages, but it was kind of too good to let die, really. So. Okay. They are such strange lovers So different from each other 
too straight to, to allow on. The LP started looking very dark and quite gothic in the traditional sense, not in the kind of Sisters of Mercy sense. <laughs> or baroque. Baroque and gothic, really. But, but, um, I guess. But, and, and that song didn't really sit, sit anywhere. And, and I, you know, it seemed like it'd be a good single because it was quite a, quite a patchy little number. Oh, know, yeah. Pretty. So English Primitive 1, make that distinction. So that came out mm. in October. That is such yes. a cool album it's such a unique collection of songs i mean there's so so many influences in it i mean you've got you know a little some of the uh i i guess i would say gentler piece like born of the welfare state was i My favorite, and I can't overstate how much I love this song, is Fox Boy. There's this Indian, Middle Eastern influence in it, and it's just incredible. I absolutely love that song. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so, one of my, my favorite films. I'm struggling to be able to do a live performance of that at the moment. I'll get there in the end. I'll figure out something. It's kind of um, it's, uh, what, what happened is, is I, I was I was sitting in lockdown online, and I and I saw I was just trying I was trying to look for so long ago that Andy and the Wolfhounds buys kind of weird instruments on eBay that he finds really cheaply, and <laughs> got like a bauble for around me. For twenty five pounds, and and they're normally like you know two or three hundred pounds, and that's great. I was kind of just going through. I was going through looking for weird stuff that I could buy. I don't have as much room as him, but I, I have the odd little thing, you know, thumb pianos and things like that, that to play around with. Okay, and I just I happened to come across the fact that there were digital tambouras, which is kind of like a drone, Indian drone instrument, you know. Yeah, and digital tablas, and then I found this box for about sixty pounds, the electronic box that basically Indian street musicians use that has about four or five tambura drones and about a hundred tablet beats on it oh wow and i watched i watched some demos on youtube and i thought well, this is fantastic actually so i just got it in the post and um i thought it was worth the investment i didn't really have the money but it was worth the investment anyway and then i just sat around i had these kind of little kind of riffs i was playing with i didn't know what to do with and as soon as i plugged this machine into an into an amplifier all these little riffs and lead licks coalesced and and the words just kind of came to me really so it's, it's wow. just kind of it just all came together in a kind of vaguely mysterious way <laughs> that is so cool i i love how it that's, that's, that song that song's now now if, if i ever get it finished that's becoming a novel as well it's becoming a kind of i guess if you were into literature you call it like a magic realist or something magical realist novel but it's that oh, kind wow. of it's that kind of thing it's kind of like it's very dirty and realistic 
and also very kind of weird and kind of um, mystical at the same time. And it's set in the Thames marshes. Oh, wow. And, and it's kind of a Romulus and Remus type story where a young boy that is abused is deserted and brought up by a, a vixen and becomes this kind of urban legend and folk hero at the same time. Oh, wow. <laughs> that sounds really wild. <laughs> So if I do if I do it properly, and I'm about ten thousand words in, um, if I do it properly, it should be really good. If I do it not so properly, it could be awful. <laughs> I'm, I'm confident in you. I have confidence. Mm, more than I have. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things I thought was great was the how the the transition from the wild Indian influence and, and Middle Eastern of Foxboy into "She's the King of My Life." That's such a sweet song. I love that song so much. And then you get, she passes through the night, which has this psychedelic birds apocalypse now feel to it. It's I just, I love this so many different sounds on it's what eight tracks. Is that right? I got to pull it up here, but it, uh, seven, actually, seven. seven songs. Okay, so I, well, I was close. I didn't have it right in front. Yep, there we go. There's, 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 eight, there's, eight, on, there's eight on the follow-up, which means that's just slightly shorter. See, I was so, yeah. I, I, was thinking ahead. I didn't feel inhibited. Often when you're writing songs for a band, you feel like it should be disciplined. This should be like three and a half minutes, four minutes, maybe five minutes long. Um, solo, I don't feel those restrictions. I can play things as long as I like. And if, and if the, a riff works for 10 minutes, then I'll play it for 10, 10 minutes. You know, like it's, I don't sound anything like this, but like you know, like Bob Dylan had lacked those restrictions on Blonde on Blonde, and it makes for a great, you know, his his last great LP, I think, yeah. argumentatively. But uh, but um, if he wants stuck inside a mobile to be eight and a half minutes, then it's eight and a half minutes. You know, it's kind of yeah. Maybe it's not that, maybe it's not that long. I don't know, but you know, it, it, the, the song needs to be as long as it needs to be. You don't have to. Uh, you don't have to edit it if you don't want to. You know, so that's the way I've approached the solo recordings. Is these the songs are as as long as they naturally and intuitively need to be, you know, and What's, possibly like a chopper verse here and there. Possibly, you know, it doesn't really matter. You know, yeah, I don't. So. Yeah, that's the beauty of of it coming out as a David Callahan album and not the Wolfhounds. You, you it's up, it's up to you. Yeah, yeah, and also I can just have it just me, or I can have can ask who I want to be on it, and they can say no, or they can say yes. You know, so it's, it's yeah. kind of it works that way for me as well. It's kind of. I like the emptiness of it. I find my guitar playing again. You, if you're in a band, you have to respond to other people, which is a good thing in that context. But here, I don't have to respond to anything other than my own kind of playing. You yeah, know? It, it, it can develop. It can spiral out of itself, whereas it, rather than keep keep going in a circle, kind of thing. Like, you know? Yeah, and you've got some other musicians on it. Was it done in a studio? Was it a home recording? And, and was it difficult to get everybody involved and in the same location with with COVID restrictions and stuff? Yes, yeah, it's, it's very difficult. But um, the, the, the COVID measures meant that there were windows in which you could meet other people. And as long as you kept testing and wearing masks and gelling up and all that, you could, you could it was doable in the end, you know. Okay. People had so little work that, that once you found one of those windows, you could get people together. And, and that's that's what I did really. But uh, the, the, in answer to your, the first part of that question, um, it tends to be a fluid thing. I'll record some in studios, some at home. Like I recorded drums and some guitars in the studio. Then I bring them back and uh, in my laptop and through. I've got an MPCX sampler and I'd link that up and I'd overdub 
samples or I'd add other instruments. So, you know, and then I'd go back to the studio and mix it or add stuff. Get Catherine's coming to some vocals or I'd get her to come around my house and overdub some stuff in the bedroom or the front room. And then I'd go back to the studio and mix it. It's kind of all that kind of to and fro all the time, you know. It's a, it's a fluid way of working, but it's these days it's very affordable. So, so you know, you just have to find the right day to book. If, this, if the studio's got some downtime or a day free, then I go in. It's very matter of fact that you just get something together and people are either available or they're not. Yeah, it, you know, like we were saying at the beginning of this conversation, it's you know, it's it's changed a lot where you can where an album would cost $30,000 or more to create, just to record it, you know, and you don't have those restrictions now. You don't have the monetary restrictions necessarily uh, when you can record a quality stuff at home. Yeah, and the money you would have spent on a massive studio before, you can spend on a decent, you know, decent mixer or no mixer at all and some decent microphones and yeah. have all the, live, all the live kind of recording you want. But it, also the other way of recording, something that's been going on for, I think Prince first did this in the late 90s, but, you know, I would send, you know, half-finished MP3s and WAVs to people like Terry Edwards who plays flute on, and trumpet on Welfare State. And he would record his part in his home and then send it back to me and then we'd mix it later somewhere else, you know. So yeah. there's all, all that. We don't, there's no restrictions on how we can record stuff. And if I want someone in the future to record stuff in Australia, I don't have to fly there. It's fantastic. You know? Exactly. And you don't even have to have a label with, and with Bandcamp and, and streaming. Now, streaming, I, you know, I got issues with that. But Bandcamp, I mean, you don't even have to have a record deal to release a record anymore. No, that's, that's that's true, and and Bandcamp, as far as all the streaming models goes, is probably the best. Yeah, um, it's also a great way of selling records because you know, well, I I like record shops. You can sell straight to people and get the biggest slice of the profit through Bandcamp. You know. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then, the records are not any cheaper, particularly on Bandcamp. I mean, it won't cost you any less than normally than going to a rough trade or somewhere. So, right, it's good to have all those options. Really, you know, it's kind of. And so being, being online and using social media has given the whole, given us a whole, my creativity, the whole new audience, revived my old audience, given me a whole new lease of life. It's kind of, there's not been a single record or song I've recorded and released or gig I've played over the last 10 years that hasn't been organized through social media. It's just completely. Wow. You know, it, as far as self-publicity goes, it's a godsend, you know? Yeah. And you still have limitations, you know, sometimes. I, I very much appreciate all the people who buy my music and listen to it, but it's hard to break out and get new people sometimes because people tend to, over the years, as it's become more commonplace, tend to stay in their own bubbles all the time and don't really listen to anything new. It's quite, you know, it's quite difficult to break through still, but you can certainly build up a, a, a limited audience really yeah. well, you know. It resulted in, in, in electric music selling out before it was released, you know, that kind of thing. We had to repress it all straight away, you know. Wow. So, so, so it's good when that, that kind of thing happens, you know. So, that is fantastic. I'm so happy to hear that because I, I love this. I, I love the albums. I mean, it, everything is just, uh, I'm so happy. I'm, I'm, a, I'm kind of annoyed that I wasn't able to to hear it back when you guys were putting stuff out in the in the late 80s, early 90s. Well, I guess mid-80s to, to... Well, I mean, how could you? You have, to, you have to be pretty, have your ear pretty underground to pick up on anything the Wolfhounds were doing in, in the yeah. 80s, you know, because, you know, we had no releases in the States. We never played there. We played our first American gig in 2014, you know. It's, it's a long time. Yeah. <laughs> from, you know, so we'd already been going 30 years by then, so it's... Been... Yeah. 
but I'm going to have to go back and pick all the albums up now because I've I'm, honestly, I am just obsessed with the sound. Like the last couple, well, I guess uh, from Blown Away on, it's just that's the sound that I loved. It, it's just mm. that noisiness. liked about it what it kind of drew me to it i guess most is that musically it's in that kind of in that my bloody valentine vein which i love but i can hear the vocals and i can understand what you're saying which i liked a lot i guess a little bit i mean it's kind of just a bit there's a lot of noisy bands at that time and yeah i I think we when when we when we finished blown away we thought our only real competition was fagazi at the time you know it might be a bit arrogant i think they're great oh fagazi yeah we didn't think anyone else was we thought that was the only thing even remotely sort of similar to what we're doing. I guess my bloody Valentine, but I guess some of the sounds are the same, but, uh, but um, they had a whole different kind of vibe, really. It's this kind of like sort of dream-like state kind of yeah. thing that we're doing, which I love. But uh, no, ours was much, theirs was about unconsciousness. Ours was about consciousness. You know? Yeah. I can see that. Respect, you know? Our stuff's always been in some, hopefully about being, socially and politically aware being you know having kind of a empathy with people but without making that you know in a, but not in a soft way you know yeah well i've but just i just love the sound I, I i'm just getting familiar with it so i'm i'm really enjoying it i'm it's this is one of those happy moments for me when when somebody suggests something for me and i fall in love with it and now it's one of these yeah, it's it. You guys are one of those bands now that I'm gonna start collecting on my own. Not because I had to listen to everything for the podcast, but because I like it, and I'm definitely gonna go back. I've got to. I'm gonna have to search and, and hunt for some of this stuff, but I'm I'm definitely getting it because most I, of the old stuff you can get you can get very cheaply on eBay. So. <laughs> 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 you, don't, you don't really have to worry that about late night drunken discog buys. It'll only cost you a few dollars. You know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it's the shipping is what's going to kill me. So, uh, what does twenty? 20- well, I think you can find you can find them in the states as well. Like Moonshake Records turn up in the states all the time. Okay, know. that yeah, that I'll have to do because that and and again, it that's a sound that I wasn't really drawn to when it was new. But now that I, I've kind of opened up my musical palette by doing this podcast a lot, I'm really getting into the stuff that I missed back in the. Ooh. In the early to mid '90s, so I'm. I'm, I'm... Oh, there's a whole there's a whole British underground in the early '90s. What, I guess they call it post rock, which is kind of annoying. But, yeah. um, there's <laughs> like bands like Bark Psychosis or Stereo Lab. You've probably heard and heard yeah. of, but bands like, bands like Pram and Bark Psychosis and stuff like this. They were they were all kind of part of that scene and used to share bills with Moonshake and stuff. Disco Inferno, people like that. They're, they're, they're all worth discovering and all completely I mean, distinctive and individual, you know? I, I remember Bark Psychosis. Like, 
Yeah. So it's, all, it's all worth digging out, really. Yeah, and it, it's a whole new avenue for me to go to, which my wife uh, might not appreciate, but... I, you know, oh god man i'm telling you i've i've got I, i'm not a huge vinyl collector because i used to listen to everything in my car so i, would, I, would, I have a huge cd collection it's like 3500 4000 cds something like that so it's just mm. more for me to add to 20 <laughs> what does 2022 look like for uh for your solo album and for the wolfhounds uh, Wolfhounds, we haven't really, it's kind of a, at the moment there's no plans, so okay. I can't read, you know, there may be, there may be the odd gig or two. Solo, I've got a, the, uh, the, the second English Primitive album should be coming out by sort of September. Okay. I'm, I'm looking at the tour as we speak, there's already six or seven dates in place. Um, I think my, my year in 2022, because of COVID and because of the, because of Brexit and because of the should we say, uh, somewhat expensive visa kind of problems of getting anyone like me to North America. Yeah. means that I'll be pretty much staying within the borders of the UK this year. Okay. And hopefully all that stuff in future will get sorted out because uh, we have, I, I often have offers of gigs on continental Europe and occasionally in the States, and it would be lovely to do them. But, you know, work permits to the States, you know, it's going to cost me close to $2,000 to even get over there and people won't pay me enough inky fees to justify it. I've um, heard that so often. I don't know if you know about this, but it costs Americans about $25 to play here. Yeah. <laughs> Plus the air yeah. so there's, there's, there's a kind of cultural imbalance there, which, which I think we should sort because it used to be easy to go and play in the States. That's why in the 90s you had nothing but Brit bands touring constantly, you know? Yeah. But I, I, I want to get abroad with my solo stuff, you know, if possible, and it'd be good to do some more stuff with all fans too. You know, I'm glad you mentioned that because I've heard several times how expensive it is for... Uh, people for, for bands and musicians to come over and play here, but I never heard the reciprocal side of that. So uh, I, I can't believe it's, it's that inexpensive to go over there and, and yeah, we can't, we can't move for American musicians over here. Always. Wow. So, you know, there's plenty of American musicians whose music I love and will go and see, but it, but it's not reciprocated and at least by the governments, you know, so I'm sure, I'm sure, you know, American, American, American people themselves would be very receptive to me and hundreds of other UK musicians being over there, but it's, oh, it's, it's cost prohibitive. Whenever, whenever you see a British band or artist performing at South by Southwest, if it's a five-piece band, they've probably paid ten or twelve thousand dollars to be there. Wow! And they've had to they've had to get they've had to have like they've had to basically apply for funding or grants to do that normally, unless they've got a big record label. Oh my god! So, so it's, 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 it's kind of a pretty shameful position to be in, really. That's that's awful. And all right, so we got to lobby to get that changed. So I like both of my listeners lobby to get that changed <laughs> so. quite yeah. and, and the same with Europe no, no, no one knows what's since we left the European Union no one knows if, if you're going to get screwed on your equipment when you go over there or your merchandise yeah. cause, because all the, all the different customs people have different ideas and you're likely to get taxed on selling t-shirts if you don't have the same amount of equipment going there as you have coming back you have to pay tax on it it's uh, it's become it's wow. become a nightmare that it was in the eighties when I first went to Europe. So, oh god, it's all gone kind of far wrong for for, me, for music at the moment. It, yeah, it sounds like it. it that's ah, it's such a shame. And and with the pandemic, I've seen so many people release a, 
work, I don't even if release, because I think they delayed a lot of releases, but, you know, digital releases and people working on stuff to be released. And when touring is hopefully getting back to normal, people need that. They're going to need to to get out and, and earn a living. Yeah. If we can make my, it easier. My, 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 business, my business model for my solo LP has just been thwarted, you know, and I yeah. can get out there and play myself in Britain, but, uh, the, the business model was to promote that abroad too, and and I certainly can't do that much at the moment. Yeah? So and that's partly because of COVID as well. Yeah. So if there is a business, I don't really have a business model, but the business model is always to try and be able to afford to carry on doing it and live. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> well, David, I kept you for quite a while today. Thank you so much for for joining me and. and so where can people follow you online, um, pick up the, the music, and maybe if they're in the UK, see a gig? Well, they, they can follow both me, David Lance Callahan, and the Wolfhounds and Moonshake, all three different pages on Facebook. Uh, they can friend me on Twitter, and they can follow me on Instagram too. All the various combinations of the Wolfhounds or my name, basically. So it's easy enough to find. So and think, what's the best um, way to pick up the albums? Um, I would say Bandcamp, the Wolfhounds Bandcamp page. Okay. Is the best way. Wonderful. Nearly everything's on there. Oh. So, yeah, the, my, my solo stuff and Andy Golding, the guitarist, solo stuff, and all the currently available Wolfhounds records are all on the Wolfhounds Bandcamp page. It's not the Las Vegas Wolfhounds who are a kind of metal band. <laughs> and young whippersnappers who we've got nothing to do with it's it's a, it's a, it's a they'll, they'll see the difference i'm sure uh, <laughs> <laughs> and hopefully after hearing this they'll they'll be able to pick it up pretty quickly listening to it at least anyway I so. so yes <laughs> uh, i right, was well, good, good to meet you you too and we'll, we'll talk to you later yeah, bye-bye bye-bye Yeah, too.